We're continuing our series this morning going through the book of Esther. We're in Esther chapter 5. We'll look at the whole chapter this morning. Before we go to God's Word, let's go together in prayer. Now, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank You that You have chosen to descend and condescend to us to reveal Yourself to us in speech. That one such as You who is high and holy and lofty has chosen to come down to learn to speak our language instead of demanding that we speak yours. So, Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word. And so we pray now, Lord, that by your spirit you would open this text up to us. Show us more of Jesus that we might find him even more beautiful. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Just one quick announcement. I haven't made this in a while just to reiterate things. You know, it is the sounds of a growing, vibrant church when you hear the sounds of children interrupting during a sermon or prayer and so I just want to as a fellow parent just kind of put that out there that we're all good I have a microphone and they're not interruptions they're signs of life because Jesus loves children and God loves children and we're glad to have them in our service with us so with that in mind we'll start out have you ever you ever been scared to do the right thing you ever been forced to take a hard risky stand Maybe you've been stuck between a rock and a hard place, proverbially and perhaps literally. Well, that's where we left Esther last week. At the end of chapter 4, Esther decides she's going to intercede for her people. She's going to go to the king about the decree to kill all the Jews. But she has a little bit of an issue. And to help us understand this issue, I want to throw a picture up here on the, on the slides for you real quick. I love when history and the Bible intersect. This is an actual thing archaeologists have discovered in Persepolis. You can go there in modern-day Iran, I believe. Uh, today, they've discovered this, they've dated it, and they're pretty sure this is a depiction of Xerxes. It may be his father, Darius, but it's probably Xerxes. This is an actual depiction of his throne room from the time of the throne room. Like he would have seen this himself and said, yes, I approve. So notice you've got the big guy in the middle, that's the king, and notice he's holding that long scepter. And notice to the right there, he's got some people coming before him kind of to, to see him. And if that scepter is not leaned forward for that person to either touch or kiss, there's people behind him and it's kind of cut off by the rough part. But if you look way far to the left, see those two or three guys holding poles? The ends of those poles that you can't see in the relief are axe heads. And their job, if he doesn't put that scepter forth, is to walk around the throne and kill his interruption. Because you didn't get to go to the king without an invitation. I mean, again, like I said last week, you know, I've heard about some secretaries being pretty fierce gatekeepers for their bosses. This is kind of crazy. And the queen is not exempt from this rule. She can't just walk up in there and be like, sup, Xerxes? Only seven people in the kingdom could do that, and she is not one. So she is risking her life to go and to talk to him uninvited about this decree. So she has all the Jews in Susa fast for three days. And at the end of those three days is where our text picks up with Esther looking at this scene, entering this scene, preparing to give a trembling invitation. So if you'll turn over to page 10 or turn in your own Bibles, we'll read the first eight verses of Esther chapter 5. <clears throat> on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters, where the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, 
She won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even up to half my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So this is God's word. So we've been looking at Esther through the lens of what I've been calling empire. Not government, but the bigger culture behind government. That set of foundational beliefs that kind of drive entertainment and politics and just the culture in general. Today, in this scene, we're going to add another aspect to that. And that's the aspect of idolatry. Because the biblical writer brings that in in this chapter. Now, when I say idolatry, I don't want you to think like National Geographic and like primitives dancing around a totem, okay? That's not idolatry in its total. Idolatry is putting our affections, it's putting our longings, it's putting our desires on anything other than the God of Scripture and looking to those things to fulfill us, to give us joy, to give us peace, to give us happiness. We can do it with spouses, we can do it with children, we can do it with careers, we can do it with stuff, cars, houses, vacations, lifestyles, whatever, anything that we say, if I have this, I'll have joy. That is what the Bible calls idolatry. And the text gets into that today, which gets us to our theme for today, which is this. Idols demand our sacrifice, but Jesus sacrificed for us. So let's jump in here. So it's been three days for Esther and her people under the shadow of death, and on the third day, she goes forward and look close with me at verse one. Verse one tells us, what does she do? She put on her royal robes. The time of mourning and crying out to God was over. It's time for action. And I love this because it literally says Esther wrapped herself in royalty. Because literally the rest of the verse says Xerxes sits in his throne of royalty in the house of royalty. So she comes adapting to that so well i'm going to put on my royalty too because she's coming trembling before the one who has the power of life and death over her now usually i wait to the end to do this part but this is so good i cannot pass it up right now for those of you who've been united to christ by faith for those of you who have placed your faith and trust in jesus that is a picture of the gospel right there We come before the great throne room only wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus. The New Testament calls it union with Christ. There's another place, and the Apostle Paul calls it, you are clothed with Christ. That in Jesus, we are wrapped in the royalty of God, and we are welcome to come right into his very throne room. It's a beautiful picture of the grace in which we stand. And Esther, she comes trembling, afraid she's going to die. But for us in Jesus, we get to come before the fierce, awesome holiness of the Creator, unafraid, because clothed in Jesus, He's safe. 
Because when God sees us, he sees his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. Because unlike Esther, who was afraid to die, Jesus did die to purchase our place in the throne room. Oh, it's a beautiful picture right here at the very beginning. And God sees us with favor just as Xerxes saw Esther and gave her favor. Granting her access. And in typical ancient Near Eastern fashion, he exaggerates and set an officer half his kingdom. If he was uh, living with us today, he would say, whatever your heart desires. It's one of those things, you know it's not actual literal, but it, it know, you know it means I'm very disposed to hear you right now. So whatever your heart desires, what is it you want? And she invites he and Haman to a meal. And Xerxes, who we've seen likes to feast, like cha- you know, channels like his inner Homer Simpson, is like, woohoo, food, wine, let's go, grab Haman, come on. You can, like, the, the excitement like, jumps off the text if you look at it. But there's more than meets the eye here. I want to zoom in on verse 4 together. Let's look at verse 4. It says, Let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Now, there's more than meets the eye here. A couple things. First of all, notice the feast has already been prepared. She expected God to grant her prayer. She expected to live. She expected Xerxes to be favorable. So she did all the prep work in advance. That's real faith right here. And, I mean, maybe it's just me because I love food. She's preparing this feast, maybe as queen, she's having others. Let's just say it's her while she's still fasting. Like she's resisting nibbling and everything because she really wants God to grant this request. But the more profound thing going on in this verse is in the original Hebrew, the last words are not the king. It's him. And if, you know, the writer of the book of Esther was in a modern English class, it would be circled and the teacher would write vague pronoun reference, tighten up. Because contextually, we assume, like the translators, she's talking about Xerxes. Grammatically, it actually leans more towards Haman that is being referred to. And why is that a big deal? Because it's purposely ambiguous. Why? Because Esther's on a mission. Haman and Xerxes are tight. She's got to come in between them, and so she sows a seed of doubt right away. Did she prepare this feast for the king or for Haman? Did she mean to risk her life and come into the throne room, or was she actually looking for Haman and Xerxes happened to see her? Because the way it reads in verse 1, it's, it's not like she entered as much as Xerxes saw her and then she approached. So there's, there's doubt being sown there right away. So they have this great meal together. They're sipping cocktails afterwards. Xerxes looks over and says, that was great, honey. Thanks so much. What's up? Tell me your heart's desire. What's going on? And Esther postpones for another night, inviting the king and Haman to come back again the next day, and she'll make her request. Is she losing her nerve here? Are we supposed to look at her and castigate her for cowardice? You pray it all up. God answered your prayer. Now you don't have the courage to move forward. Well, this is one of those areas where we are at a loss if we come to the Bible looking for little morality lessons or if we read the Bible always looking for people to imitate. Because as I've said before, Jesus himself said in Luke 24, the Bible is about him. It's not about us looking for models to imitate primarily. Yes, secondarily, thirdly, you can maybe find imitation. But firstly, it's about Jesus and what he's doing for us. And so right here, Esther is not so much an example like morality or courage as she is an example of brilliant, practical wisdom. Here's what I mean by that. Esther was in the classical world, and 
Maybe she was classically trained because of that, because she totally smacks Xerxes upside the head with the five canons of rhetoric to persuade him. Now, if like me, you weren't classically educated, let me put it a different way. So I'm not much of a fisherman. My dad is a big hunter and a big fisherman, and I'm, I'm not any of those things. And I know it was probably a disappointment to him because he wanted this guy to go be his buddy. That's just not me. But I, I went fishing a couple times, and I remember that, you know, like we always seem to have lots of water and sunshine and heat and no fish. But there'd be times when the fish are actually biting. And, you know, I kind of have this like intense personality sometimes. And so I would like get the pole and just be staring at the bobber, right? Just, just so intense. And the slightest little tinge on the hook, I was just, ah! as fast as I could. I was getting frustrated because I couldn't catch any fish. So my dad is watching me, and he sees my wonderful performance doing that, and my dad is a very practical man, um, and he just looks at me, and he goes, true story, almost exact quote, boy, doing it that way, are you going to get a pair of lips? Calm down and let the hook go to work. And that's what Esther's doing here. She's after a whale, not lips. And so she's working that hook. She wants Xerxes to swallow this hook completely. See, this shows us it's okay to get skilled up. It's okay to know how to persuade. It's okay to know how to do your craft that God has put you well. There's no let go and let God in Esther's mind. There's step up and trust God in Esther's mind. Using all the skills and all the providences that he has worked together. Now, in case you think I'm being a little bit risque here, maybe, is that biblical? Are you sure about that? I want to look together at our Lord himself, his words, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Our Lord Jesus, instructing his people, says this. In Matthew 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 16, we got there. There we go. It says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. It's one of those things we read, we're like, that's weird, so we skip it and move on, right? But I want to dig in here. What is Jesus telling people? Jesus is saying, look, be wise as serpents. Understand your context. Understand the world around you. Understand how to communicate to people just like Esther does. She, has, she takes advantage of the situation. She understands how to work Xerxes. And I love this because Christianity gets a bad rap for supposedly being like anti-woman or patriarchal. There might be some churches out there. The Bible is not. And this is one of the places we can point to as Esther say, look, she's using courage. She's using faith. She's using wisdom, not her looks, to be a hero here. And the Bible is showing her in a positive light. And she saves her entire race. In fact, the main male characters, Mordecai, Xerxes, and Haman, all come across as not the nicest or the brightest of people, and she stands up as a shining light. It's a book that I love for my daughters to read, to show them, like, here's how you can, God can use you. Because Esther demonstrates the wisdom that we need in a post-Christian culture. Here's how a UK pastor I was reading this week put it. He said this. He said, we do not advance the work of the kingdom by alienating people needlessly. See, we can learn from Esther here. Xerxes is the empire. So she appeals and speaks to him in the language of empire. I want to dig into verse 8 and show you this. Let's look together at verse 8. So she says this, her final second request. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So 
logically, if you follow that, all those if-then statements, if he accepts the invitation, he already has agreed to grant her wish. Psychologically, by the time of the next banquet, he has promised three times to do whatever she's asked. He can't deny her now without losing face. Emotionally, she did not just invite the king. She invited Haman again. Haman is now drifting into what we might call third wheel territory now. Xerxes may not be so predisposed to like Haman at this point. See, this is a shrewd working of Xerxes. She is clearly prepared as she prayed and fasted. So she extends this trembling invitation, and it's accepted. And then the writer shifts the scene very abruptly to, from her trembling invitation to a bragging invitation. Let's look together at verses 9 through 14. <clears throat> and Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, and all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king." Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had a gallows made. Well, that escalated quickly. So Haman leaves the banquet elated. He's like doing the Carlton down the street. He's so excited. It's been the best day of his life, right? You know, maybe he's like channeling the early 80s music. He's like, you know, ain't nothing going to break in my stride, right? He's just super excited, right? And he sees Haman. He just hates him, just hates him. And he wants him to squirm because Mordecai has the edict. Haman knows that he, or Mordecai knows Haman made the edict. He should be scared and he's not scared. He doesn't respect him. He's not intimidated by him. All that good in his life just evaporates, leaving him filled with wrath. It's a crazy, sudden shift in emotions. And it should make you kind of chuckle, kind of feel sad, and kind of also go, what on earth is going on here? Why, why this sudden shift in emotions? Well, the writer tells us, we don't have to leave it up to our speculation and creativity, the writer gets something that the original readers would catch up on. Look with me at verse 9. I want to dig into a little phrase from verse 9. It says this, Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. That's like a phrase that when an Old Testament person hears that, they would recognize that phrase. Like if I said the rocket's red glare, you'd immediately think of the Star-Spangled Banner. They would immediately think of a primary incident. That exact phrase is used to describe the worshipers at the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem. In both accounts, in Kings and Chronicles, after a week-long worship service, it says that they all left, with that exact phrase, they all left joyful and glad of heart. So an original reader would go, oh, Haman's been to worship because Haman's an idolater. Y'all thought I forgot about the idolatry thing? I talked about it. We're here. Haman has just come from worship, is how an original reader would take that. See, he's an idolater. 
Haman needs to have people be afraid of him. Haman needs to have the esteem of others. Haman needs people to puff him up. He needs people to think highly of him. See, both Haman and empire want you to reflect their glory. And when you don't, they hate you. You know, boys and girls, unfortunately, those of you listening at home and here, you kind of get this maybe a little bit more intensely than your parents get this. What happens at school, or maybe even in other groups, when you want to fit in with others? Well, they, they expect you to do what they like, right? Don't do what you like, do what we like, and we'll accept you. Think what we think is cool, and you'll be cool too. See, Haman thinks Haman's cool. And when Mordecai doesn't think Haman's cool, Haman hates Mordecai. He is a fanatic to protect his idol. And before we dig into him, we have to check our own hearts and recognize that deep down, like Haman, when it comes to our idols, we're all fanatics too. These idols we have in our hearts, those things that we think are important, those things that we want recognized when others don't recognize them or when others perhaps threaten our idols, we attack. We get angry quickly. I mean, think about it. What causes you like, just like that to just get angry so quickly? Most likely, an idol of your heart has been threatened in that moment. And so we attack. That's what happened to Haman in this chapter. See, when we overreact in a given situation, it's usually because a particular idol is being threatened. We lash out in anger just like Haman does in verses 12 and 13. He's bragging to his cronies about all his greatness. Sounds like a real fun party, right? And he confesses that it's all worthless because of this one thing. And I love how Haman's like father of the year there. We can assume his sons are right there. He's bragging about his sons. and Y'all are all worthless because Mordecai breathes. Thanks, Dad. I mean, I can make fun of him some more, but I won't because um, I get Haman here, actually. I, I have a people-pleasing heart. I do. I want to be liked so bad. And if just one person has an issue with me, if I don't, just one person might not be too happy with me. I, my, my, I might not be on their, you know, goody, good boy list. I just fixate on it. I can't think of anything but that. I get insecure. I doubt everything in my life, and I just can't stop it because I need Jesus real bad. I need to rest in what the gospel says, that Jesus puts his approval on me, and in Jesus, God puts his approval on me. I shouldn't care what other people think, but I'm an idolater at heart. I want people to like me. If I believed the gospel, I wouldn't be an emotional roller coaster like Haman. And I bet I'm not alone. In Jesus, dear Christian, our joy should just be impenetrable. But it's not, is it? Like Haman, man, we let all sorts of things steal our joy. I mean, yes, I know that I'm a Christian. I know that God loves me and that Jesus holds me close. But really, that doesn't even matter that much because I can't get pregnant. My boss doesn't like me. I have no friends. That guy has more stuff. My spouse doesn't like me. My life seems pointless. Fill in your blank. Yeah, good theology, but... See, this is where the wisdom of of Esther comes in to help us. Because empire is full of idolaters just like us. 
They are looking to siphon security and happiness from anything. And so when we are out there in empire, we can expect them to react poorly because we know we do. And so we, I have the resources of Jesus and I don't react well. I certainly can't expect someone who doesn't have the resources of Jesus to react well. I mean, let's just get real practical, right? There is no conversation about gender issues. If we don't celebrate gender confusion, we are attacking their idol and we are hated. That's why there's so much anger and irrationality about that issue. It's a, it's a heart idol issue. We're not simply standing up for the unborn. If we don't celebrate abortion, if we don't celebrate the blood sacrament of the religion of secularism, we have attacked their idol. And they lash out because they hate us. We have threatened their idol. That's why they demonize the pro-life. And that's why we sometimes demonize people we disagree with too, right? Because they've attacked my idol. And I lash out. I don't want to be like empire. I don't want to be like culture. Because how is culture, how is empire? They're Haman's wife. Haman's wife says, you know what? Let's destroy anybody opposed to you. Don't wait 11 months. Cancel Mordecai now. See, Haman needed better counselors. These were his people that he surrounded himself with. So they affirmed him in his folly, in his idolatry. I think it was Paul Tripp. I couldn't find this, but I think it's Paul Tripp who said that trying to understand ourselves is like looking into one of those carnival mirrors that distorts you. You'll never get an accurate, accurate picture. You need God's word held up to you to give you an, ac- an accurate reflection. But you also need God's word typically held up by someone not in your tribe. Because often, like Mordecai, what happens is, like Mordecai got, the, got this in chapter 3, if you remember, co-workers who weren't Jewish came up to him and kind of held up a mirror of truth said, why are you disobeying the king? You're going to get in trouble. He ignored them. Haman doesn't want people who disagree, so he surrounds himself by cronies, and both suffer tremendously because they didn't have an adequate person in their life who could hold up God's word and say, are you, are you responding correctly? See, God often uses people, at least for me, in my life with whom I disagree. Even people who hurt me have often been the most effective tools for checking my heart against Scripture. Haman didn't have those people. Mordecai ignored them, and it cost them both. So the chapter ends with dramatic tension is what they call it in the literary world. Mordecai is a dead man walking. Esther's wisdom may be on the process to save her people, but because she delayed one day, it's going to cost her her adoptive father. Because there's a trembling invitation, there's a bragging invitation, and we'll wrap up with a gracious invitation. That's not in the text, but it's kind of above the text. We said our theme for today is that idols demand our sacrifice, but Jesus sacrificed for us, and we see that theme playing out in the two kings in this chapter. Xerxes is completely unapproachable to his people. He has an entire system set up on the pain of death so that you can't come right up to him. Because fundamentally, people are a burden to be kept away. 
The other king in this text is God himself, who is also utterly unapproachable because of our sin. And the Old Testament outlines an entire system set up on the pain of death so that we could not come right to him. Not because we were a burden, but to protect us from being destroyed by his holiness. But then his only son, the Lord Jesus, comes and he pays the price to fulfill that system so that we can go into God's presence. By his own blood, Jesus paves the way for us to go directly into God's throne room, wrapped in his royalty as his beloved children. See, Esther faced death to stand in this gap for her people. Jesus tasted death to stand in this gap for his people. And now God is gracious to sinners like us. In Jesus, he lowers the scepter and says, Come to me all who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Because the rod of his judgment fell on Jesus instead of us. Well, if you're here today or listening today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, then let go of those things in your life that you look to for meaning or security or identity. You don't just do it by getting disciplined. Okay, I'm going to stop doing that. But I, I would compel you to look at the beauty of Jesus, to look at this gracious man in the gospel, this God who chose to come to us when we could not come to him. See the beauty that he offers you and, and let go of this other thing and grab onto this beautiful thing. Place your faith and trust in Jesus as the resurrected Lord and he will set you free from those things. And for those of us who are Christians, I had this really great setup for communion. We're postponing communion until next week because we want people to be here and participate in it. But think about communion. Back in verse 5, Xerxes gets an invitation and he's super excited to go be with his bride. And it's my joy to tell you that the Lord Jesus Christ looks at our communion services super excited to have a meal with his bride. So often we come to communion because it's a very serious thing, and it is, but we forget the emotional context that Jesus is excited to meet with his bride again. He's like, yay, I get to feast with those whom I love more than anything. He is excited to graciously receive us in communion. So as you prepare yourself, dear flock, for communion next week, think about how Jesus is actually excited, ready for your date together in communion, longing for it. And see again the beauty that he offers to you. That he truly loves his emotionally insecure, idolatrous people like me. That's the beauty of the gospel. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God, it's too much. It's just too much. Too good to be true, Lord. It really is. We thank you, Father, that your grace is bigger than our skepticism. That your joy at us is bigger than our unbelief. And that your longing to be with us is bigger than our reluctance to come. And so, Father, we ask that you would once again do your work of grace. For those of us who already know you, would you draw us deeper into the beauty of Jesus. That we may rejoice that we stand in union with him. And that the incredible news that in Jesus you see us as beautiful too. And Lord, for those here today who are listening who don't know you, Lord, we claim your promise. Jesus, you said yourself that if you were lifted up, you will draw all people to yourself. And Lord, we have lifted you up this morning, showed that you've been crucified for sinners and raised for our life and to defeat death. So Father, would you do your work of drawing people to him even now? 
Would you cause people to confess faith in Christ even this moment? And we ask all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.